Welcome to the Gainesville Vineyard Podcast, featuring sermons given at our church and community center located in the Lincoln Estates neighborhood in Gainesville, Florida. If you find these messages beneficial, if you're part of our community, or if you want to help support the services we're providing to Southeast Gainesville, you can text the word GIVE to 352-562-7771 to make tax-deductible donations. Here's this week's message. Good morning. Thanks for tuning into the Gainesville Vineyard Sunday live stream service. I'm Mike Graber and lead pastor here. I appreciate you giving us your time today. I've got a couple of announcements and then I'll move right into our teaching. First of all, at the end of my teaching, we're going to take communion together. So grab something to eat and drink and have that ready. Uh, we'll consecrate the elements together. It uh, doesn't matter what it is. I've got coffee and coffee cake. I'm going to consecrate this and you consecrate what you have and we'll take it together as the body and blood of Jesus at the end of our time together this morning or whenever you're watching this. It doesn't have to be in the morning. Some of you watch this later and that's fantastic. Um, Next announcement for those of you who are signed up for our Life of the Beloved Zoom group study that will be happening tonight at 7 p.m. So I hope you remember that and show up and we'll have a good time. The first two weeks have been really good. I appreciate everyone who's contributed to that. So I look forward to seeing you this evening. Last announcement is giving. There are three ways you can give to Gainesville Vineyard. You can text the word give to the number on the screen. You can go to our website, gainesvillevineyard.org and give that way. There's a big give button in the upper right hand corner. And you can mail a check to our PO box, which is also on the screen. All donations are tax deductible, of course. And folks ask me all the time, well, where does the money go? Well, it goes to basic stuff like salaries for for me and Leah and Teresa. Uh, It goes to supply things for the literacy program. Uh, It goes for the food pantry. We're not open for our big giveaways, but we still have folks that we're supplying groceries to every week. And so that helps us provide groceries for those folks. Uh, It does take care of maintenance things. We had a, a lightning strike, took out a couple of pine trees. So we had to have a professional tree service come and deal with that. Uh, this past week so things like that so we have the property ready to go uh, once we move past the pandemic and we support grace marketplace and partnership for strong families and missions in um, tanzania so we've got a lot of things going on we don't always talk about uh, that much but your donations go to support all of those efforts and i'm sure some that i'm forgetting at the moment so thanks for your donations we really appreciate those um We're in Jeremiah, and I told you last week, if you're reading ahead, to read Jeremiah 11 through 20. And I wrestled with that whole big passage uh, a lot this week, and and I wound up, I thought I was going one way when I said that last Sunday. Uh, And as I got deeper into the text and and read it more closely uh, this week, a couple of things that I'm going to share with you today really stood out, and they're on the front end. So if you're reading ahead, we're just going to focus next week on chapter 15 through 20. We're not going to actually go any further ahead because the thing I thought I was going to talk about today, I'm going to talk about next week, I think. Uh, But today I've got a specific message out of chapters 11 through 14 that I want to bring to you. And it's really um, picking up on what we talked about last week and what we've been talking about for a couple weeks, um, that Jeremiah... Um, is there along with the with the Deuteronomy tradition, you know, as as Judah is about to go into exile to Babylon, and they're they're encouraging the people to listen to the voice of Yahweh. Chapter eleven, verse seven, it says, "Obey my voice." That's the message that Jeremiah has for the Judahites. That's the message of Deuteronomy: "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." The covenant 
between Yahweh and Israel was a covenant of listening and obeying. It wasn't a covenant of sacrifices, as we talked about last week. It was a covenant of relationship. It was a covenant of intimacy. It was a covenant of obedience, or at least it was supposed to be. Um, Israel and, and Judah had a very long history of not listening and not obeying, and that's what Jeremiah is unpacking for us here. But specifically, we're talking about the covenant at the beginning, the covenant they made at Sinai, not the later covenant that was made with David, uh, that he would have a king forever. That's more of a messianic covenant as we would see it. But what Jeremiah is talking about here is the relationship covenant between Yahweh and his people, which is also a covenant that everyone else is invited into as well, as we'll say more about, I think, next week, because that's what I thought I was going to talk about today. But there, there are a couple of things that really stood out to me today that I want to get into, and a couple of them are, are prophetic. Um, one's a prophetic act that Jeremiah does, and, and, the, and an analogy, or, or a, I guess, I'm not sure if analogy is the right word, but let's just use that, uh, because he's, he's representing something else. And then another, basically a small parable he tells that's an analogy for something else as well. And then we're going to also talk more about lament. So let's start with this first um this first act that Jeremiah does is in chapter 13, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, but just to give you a recap, uh, God comes to Jeremiah and says, I want you to go buy um, what's translated in most translations as a loincloth. Now, we're not 100% sure what that was, uh, but it was probably made out of linen, and it was it was, the word indicates an undergarment of some kind. Uh, so maybe it was some sort of belt that held the tunic, you know, the underwear we talked about back in the Sermon on the Mount series last year. It might have been something like that. Uh, it was. It's definitely an undergarment, and it seems to have been something that went about the waist. Um, but anyway, Yahweh tells Jeremiah to buy one of these things and to wear it, and and, and tells him not to wash it. I'm not going to get into all that. But he, he, Jeremiah wears it around his waist, uh, either on top of his undergarment or maybe on top of nothing, it may be against his skin. Again, we're not 100% sure. But after Jeremiah has worn it close to his body intimately for a bit, uh, God tells him to take it off and take it to Anathoth, where um, there were a, a community of priests who were um, in, in argument with Jeremiah. We'll see that again. I think we'll talk about that next week. But he has a, he has an altercation with some priests at Anathoth. And he takes this this girdle or this loincloth uh, there. I mean, loincloth sounds like like Tarzan to us. I, I'm not suggesting it was that. We don't exactly know. Uh, don't get hung up on that. I, I wanted to call it underwear, but it's it's not exactly that. But it'd be the closest thing for us if we were wearing something like that. So anyway, God tells Jeremiah to take it up to Anathoth and bury it on the bank of a river and under a rock. And so Jeremiah does. And he leaves it there for a long time. And then God tells him to go back and to dig it up. And of course, when he digs it up, it's ruined. It's got holes in it. It's It's been, you know, it's disintegrating as, as linen will do when you bury it in the ground under a rock next to a river. And so here's what Yahweh says uh, to Jeremiah, starting in verse 10 of chapter 13, uh, at the end of this, um, you know, prophetic enactment that Jeremiah um, does. He says, these wicked people refuse to listen to me. There's the listening again. They stubbornly follow their own desires and worship other gods. Therefore, they will become like this loincloth, good for nothing. As a loincloth clings to a man's waist, 
So I created Judah and Israel to cling to me, says the Lord. They were to be my people, my pride, my glory, an honor to my name, but they would not listen to me. So whatever loincloth indicates, it's something that's supposed to be close and it's supposed to suggest intimacy here. Israel, Judah was supposed to be close to Yahweh, intimate with Yahweh, close to his waist, close to his body, uh, as close as an undergarment. Um, But they refused to do that. Instead of staying close to Yahweh and right about his waist, they left and they went after the religion that the priests were selling. They, They buried themselves in the religion that the priests were selling. Instead, of the intimacy that Yahweh wanted them to live in, listening to him and obeying his voice. They lost that intimacy with Yahweh, um, and they were ruined in the process, is the point of this story, the point of this um, act that Jeremiah engages in. Israel's called to intimacy with God, and they traded that for religion and were buried under it and ruined by it. And I think that's a clear story for us as well that we're given that choice as well. We're invited into intimacy with the Lord. And too often we trade that intimacy for religion. We bury ourselves under religious practices or or religious dogmas and things like that. And when we do that, we're separated. We're far away from where we're supposed to be, just as Jeremiah was far away from his garment that he had purchased. And then we're ruined in the process. So, Henry Nowen says this, Be sure to taste the moment to the full. The Lord always reveals himself to you where you are most fully present. In your prayer, try to present your anxieties, struggles, and fears to him, and let him show you the way to follow him. We are invited into intimacy. And what intimacy with God looks like is this, is being fully present fully present to the Lord, fully present to ourselves, to how we're feeling, to how we're thinking, and fully present to reality. Prayer is not escapism. Life with Jesus is not, you know, running off from reality. Prayer is attuning to what is real. It's naming and speaking what is real. Intimacy with God should bring us more fully present into life, not remove us from life. It shouldn't send us far away and bury us under a rock. It should bring us fully present into the present. That's what we're invited into. And that's what we see modeled over and over again in these chapters um, with, with the lament that Jeremiah engages in in his prayers. And I talked a bit about that last week, and I'm going to unpack that a little bit more right now. Um, and, and in the weeks coming forward as well, I think. But but look at this. This is a little chart I want to put up for you. Uh, in, in Jeremiah 11 through 14, um, there are a number of lament prayers. Um, Brueggemann tells us that these passages are models for the depth of honesty that is appropriate in prayer. Now, lament prayers have a specific form that we find used over and over again in the book of Psalms, for example where they're most prevalent. And the first part of the prayer is a complaint. That's the right word for it, a complaint. 
And the second part would be a petition asking for something related to the complaint. And then the third part is the divine response. Now, I'm not going to read all of these to you this morning because we'd be here for a while. But I want to encourage you, and I'm going to put this up in our Facebook group as, as an image so you can see. I would encourage you to spend some time looking at all four of these passages. The complaints that Jeremiah gives, the petitions that he makes, and the responses that God gives in, in, in return. Now, you'll find lament prayers in the Psalms, and I'll tell you that the responses in Psalms are um, more positive than the responses that you'll see here. Um, God's uh, pretty direct and honest with Jeremiah, as Jeremiah is very direct and honest with God as well. Um, it's a little, it's a little um, more encouraging in Psalms, but of course the situations are different. But I think these are very helpful to us. One, because they teach us to pray honestly. And that's the one thing I want to encourage you this morning, is to learn from Jeremiah to pray honestly. Complaint is the right word. And I'll, I'll read you a passage in just a second. But Jeremiah is, is not shy about telling God what he thinks, uh, about what's going on, about what he thinks God is doing and God should be doing. He's very direct and he's very open. And then he asks for what he wants, uh, what he really wants. He doesn't pull any punches there either. And then God responds. And so I would encourage you to spend some time with these passages and 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 listen to, to the honesty Jeremiah prays with and try to try to emulate that. Try to pray honestly, both in complaining and in asking. And then I would encourage you also to see in, in these laments the responses that Yahweh gives. And you can look at some of the ones in Psalms as well for more positive examples. But that you would be open and listen for the response that Yahweh would give to you in your own complaints and in your own petitions. This is what intimacy looks like. This is not escapism. This is intimacy moving into reality. Okay, so complaint, petition, and then a divine response. So you gotta you gotta say what you really feel and then ask for what you really want and then wait to see what God says in response. So here's one example. I'll, I'll show you the complaint in Jeremiah 12. Jeremiah says, You are always righteous, Lord, when I complain to you, when I bring a case against you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? You have planted them and they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You were always on their lips, but far from their hearts. I'll give you one more part of Jeremiah's complaint. He says in verse 4, How long would the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away. And then I'm just going to give you one part of what God says in response. In verse 11, God says, They made my precious plot a desolate wilderness. They have made her a desolation. She mourns to me desolate. All the land is desolate because no one takes it to heart. Nobody notices and nobody cares that the land is devastated. The land is made desolate. The land is left to mourn for itself apart from any human care. God joins Jeremiah in the lament. That's the response God gives in this case is to join with Jeremiah and say, yeah, I know it's bad. I know that the land's not being taken care of. I know that their sin is wrecking the land. Their actions are causing ecological desolation. This is what God says to Jeremiah as we were talking about a bit last week as well. 
So sometimes the response is just God saying, yeah, I'm with you. I know how it is. In all these things, what's really helpful to see is that Jeremiah is telling us how God feels and, and what God thinks. This is the job of the prophets. Again, as I mentioned a bit last week, here's a quote from Abraham Heschel. He says, the characteristic of the prophets is not foreknowledge of the future, but insight into the present pathos of God, signifying God as involved in history, as intimately affected by events in history, as living care. Pathos means God is never neutral, never beyond good and evil. God is always partial to justice. God is always partial to justice. God always takes a side. And part of what that tells us is it's okay for us to take a side in our prayers. God doesn't expect you to come to prayer giving him some both-sidisms. You don't have to do that. You can say exactly what you think and exactly how you feel. And you can make your complaints known and tell God exactly what you really want, what you would really like to see happen, what you think needs to happen. And then wait for what God says in response to you. The one that I think is most moving and, and the most evocative of the divine pathos is the lament prayer that comes in chapter 14. And, and this, this again is Jeremiah speaking, but the way it's worded here in the grammar, it makes it clear that this is, this is God speaking. This is Yahweh's own lament prayer. And as he joined Jeremiah at the end of the lament prayer in chapter 12, Yahweh initiates the second lament prayer in chapter 14. Look at this. He says, speak this word to them. Let my eyes shed tears. Night and day, let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people is shattered in a great disaster with a very grievous blow. If I go out to the field, I see those slain by the sword. And if I come to the town, I see those ravaged by famine. But the prophets and priests go about business as usual. They have no idea what's going on in the land. See, what Jeremiah is doing here is he's paying close attention to the reality on the ground. The reality of people's lives, the reality of nature, the reality of, of the politics of the day, of everything that's going on. And he's spending time in God's presence. He's not far away under a rock, but he's at God's side. And so he's attuned to how God feels and, and what God thinks because he's He's dialoguing with God in prayer. And so then he's able to understand the divine pathos and he's able to communicate. He has an increased sensitivity to the presence of God um, through his prayer, through his complaints, through his petitions. So the, the thing that, that God is complaining about with the, with the underwear example is this loss of intimacy and this loss of intimacy is also a loss of understanding of what God thinks about what's going on in our world. So we have to come back to intimacy with God. We have to come back to intimacy with the Holy Spirit. We have to go deep in our intimacy with Jesus. If we're going to understand what God thinks and how God feels about what's going on in our day and what's going on in the church, in our society, now, the Lord will show us that and unpack that for us, just as he did for Jeremiah, if we're intimate with the Lord leading up to that. 
But that's not what most leaders in Judah at the time were doing, certainly not the priests and the prophets. Look at this in chapter 13, starting in verse 12. Say to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Every wineskin should be filled with wine. And they will say to you, don't we know that every wineskin should be filled with wine? Then tell them, this is what the Lord says. I am going to fill with drunkenness all who live in this land, including the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all those living in Jerusalem. I will smash them one against the other, parents and children together, said the Lord. I will not spare and will not have pity and will show no mercy in ruining them. Every jar, every wineskin should be filled with wine. Some translations will say bottle or jar uh, or, or, or clay pot or something. Um, they didn't really use clay pots for wine. They used wineskins back in the day. But the word can mean either. It's a container. But it was probably wineskins. But in, in either case, um, every, every container will be filled with wine. This was an adage that went about in the day, and it, it was an adage about equity, kind of like, you know, a chicken for every pot was, was a saying back in the, back in the day, right? Um, or or, the, or the, the passage we see in Micah chapter 4, which says everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. This was the sentiment that was supposed to be part of the covenant at Sinai was that everyone will enjoy life. Everyone will have their own land. Everyone will have not only their basic needs met, but everyone will have good things. Everyone will have wine. Everyone will be able to enjoy life and enjoy their time. And the people will acknowledge that. They'll say, yeah, we know that. We, we've heard that. We know that's the case. Um, but remember what I just read to you in chapter 12, verse 2. It says, you are near in their mouth and far from their heart. These people were giving lip service to God. They were giving lip service to covenant. They were giving lip service to equity, but they weren't doing it. They weren't actually living it out. And, 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 the, and the, the covenant required equity. Shalom requires equity. There can't be shalom if there's not equity. If everyone doesn't have their own amount of wine to drink and good things to enjoy, then there's not really peace. There's not really equity. There's not really reciprocity going on. Um, and so what had happened was instead of everyone having good things, they were hoarding good things. They were getting drunk because they had more wine than they needed because they were taking wine from their neighbors. They were taking wine from the other people uh, in Judah. And, and, and wine is a metaphor here for everything. They had rejected equity for their own excess. They had rejected shalom for their own selfishness. They had rejected distribution for drunkenness. And so they were living to excess in all of these ways. And it was a failure of leadership. They, they had, the leaders had no knowledge of God. Uh, they had no capacity to live out the covenant. They had no inclination to listen and to obey what God was telling them to do. And they were giving no attention to Torah. They were giving no attention to the word of the Lord. They were giving no attention to the things that were required of them. And the same can be said in our own day. I mean, let me ask you this this way. When you hear a leader speak, a political leader, or oftentimes even a church leader, do you think the first thing they're thinking is, is what I'm going to say true 
Is it good? Is it just? Is this promoting equity? Is this promoting shalom? Is that what they're asking of themselves before they say or do whatever they're going to say or do? Or are they asking, how does this affect my own power and privilege? Does this bring more power and privilege to me? Or is this put my power and my privilege and my status at risk? And I know and you know that just this week we have seen over and over again national leaders and regional leaders make choices that are clearly them protecting their status and their power and their privilege. Even though most people can see through the falsehoods. Most people can look and say, what you're saying is not even rational. It's, I mean, I heard someone say the other day, talking about the Capitol riots, like, well, we don't need to relitigate the Capitol riots. Like, relitigate it? It hasn't been litigated the first time. We don't even want to deal with these things. We just want to brush them under the rug and pretend that nothing happened. We've seen plenty of examples of that this week. And, and those examples are people who are protecting their own excess. They are not living out equity. They are not living out reciprocity. They are hoarding. And hoarding leads to drunkenness. And drunkenness leads to irrationality and not knowing what's going on in a variety of ways. And, and I've seen this my own self this very week at the most local of leadership levels. There was an interaction with a local leader just this week where it was apparent that they were, they were not telling the truth. They were not interested in pursuing the truth. They wanted to protect their own power and their own privilege and their own status. And it's just heartbreaking because what the leaders of Judah were doing is what the leaders of America are doing. And it's what power does, right? Um, all, all you Lord of the Rings fans, you know, I mean, Tolkien's right. That ring of power, it's, it's hard to give up power willingly. And it, it becomes its own temptation to not do that. But when we get into that place where we're more interested in protecting status or, or power or privilege or just not rocking the boat, like we see this over and over again in church. We're like, we can't, we can't dare tell the truth because it will upset someone. We, you know, we can't talk about equality. We can't talk about equity because, you know, not everyone's ready to deal with it. We have to like, you know, soft pedal the truth. Um, that leads us to a place where we're not living in reality. And this is exactly what I just read to you in chapter 14. The lament that, that Yahweh gives. He says, you know, I'm shedding, God is crying uncontrollably. Um, you know, the people have been shattered. There's this great disaster. The bodies are slain. People are ravaged by famine. And then the last sentence, look at this again. The prophets and the priests go about business as usual. They have no idea what's going on in the land. They're in the land. They ostensibly can see what's going on. But they refuse to acknowledge what's going on because to acknowledge what's going on is to put their own power, their own privilege, their own hoarding in excess at risk. And they won't do that, even though it leaves the people starving and slain and shattered and God crying uncontrollably. This is where they were and this is where we are as well. And it's where we've been. It's, this isn't recent either. You know, it, it, it can seem like, well, Mike's just talking about like right now or the last few years. No, no, look at this quote. This is Jacques Ellul writing in like, I think like 1981. He says this, 
on all levels and in every aspect of our society. Uh, he's French, but he's speaking of Western society generally. The poor are rejected, mistreated, and forced more deeply into their poverty. Christianity should have taken up the cause of the poor. Better yet, it should have identified with the poor. Instead, during well, almost the entire course of its history, the church has served as a prop of the powerful and has been on the side of exploiters and states. The church is numbered among the powers. It has sanctified the situation of the poverty-stricken. It provided theological justification for political regimes and tried to persuade the poor to accept their oppressed condition, all the while legitimizing their exploitation. The church has truly functioned as the opium of the people. By so doing, it not only participated in the evil done to people, but above all, it betrayed the teaching and the very person of Jesus. This isn't new. This has been the state of the church in the West for a long time. As I talked about a couple of weeks ago, the church was deeply complicit in the slave trade across the North Atlantic. The church in America was deeply complicit in, in, the, in the construction and the maintenance of Jim Crow and of segregation, not just in the South, but all over. And in recent years, we've found other ways to, to, to oppress minorities, to oppress women, to oppress LGBT folks. The church has been complicit in all of these things. And so it's really hard for me to sit here and say that we're to be about the work of equity and the work of reciprocity and the work of shalom when the history of the church has been so opposite of that so often and for so long. And if we're going to be honest, if we're going to regain intimacy with the Lord, we have to say these things. These have to be our complaint. The words of Jacques Ellul have to become our prayer. Like, Lord, this is how it is. How is it that your church has been acting this way for so long? How is it that German Christians became Nazis? How is it that American Christians have become, you know, white nationalists? This doesn't even make sense. These are the things that we have to be saying and naming. How is it that the church, you know, the, I went to a Christian college. It was the last college in the South to integrate and only by force of, of legal threat. Why weren't we on the front of that, not on the back end of that? Why do we have this difficulty ordaining women in, in so many churches? Are you kidding me? We should be on the front of that, not on the back of that. Why are we the last people to understand that LGBT folks deserve rights and love and respect? Why? Why are we so far behind? Why are we resisting justice at, at so many turns when what we're called to is the work of equity and the work of reciprocity? And these are the laws and the commands that God has given us from the beginning. This isn't new. This has been here all along. We must do the work of equity. We must live according to the law of reciprocity. God created creation with the law of reciprocity at work, and we ignore that to our own peril. Working towards shalom 
and a relationship, that nexus of relationships between us and God and us and each other and us and creation and us and our own selves, that only works if we're working towards equity and reciprocity. Um, and what I've been driving at and where I think this is headed for us right now is that we're going to have to learn to do this in exile. The American church, it needs an exile because just like the leaders in Judah were drunk, drunk on their power, drunk on their excess. The American church has its own set of addictions that we're going to have to be in recovery from for probably a long time. The American church is addicted to power. It's addicted to money. It's addicted to celebrity. It's addicted to consumption, to creating all of these swaggy things that we have to have. It's addicted to growth. Lord, help us, church growth. It's addicted to racism. It's addicted to sexism. It's, a, it's addicted to domineering dogma. It's addicted to cultural control. Just as the priests and the prophets and, and the king were drunk on their excesses, the American church is drunk on all of these addictions. And we must name that and be honest about that because our drunkenness has shattered us and our society. Those of us who, who have had a difficult and contentious relationship with church low these many years, this is why. And we've got to figure out a way to walk in intimacy with the Lord and walk through this, walk through recovery. And so let me sum up and I got a couple of assignments for you. One, that's the first thing we have to regain and deepen our intimacy with God's presence, our intimacy um, with the Lord that, that's tied to a clear eyed connection to reality, not religion as escapism, not my relationship with Jesus over here in a box where I just pretend that racism and sexism and, and, and discrimination is not going on, you know, doesn't affect me but where my relationship with Jesus is centered in all of these difficulties. And so the assignment for that is I want you to learn to complain in prayer. That's why I put the chart up earlier of Jeremiah. I really want you to spend time with Jeremiah's complaints. He's a good complainer. He's a good model for us about how to complain in prayer. We have to take time to name all of these things. And name them specifically. And you can name them so much more specifically in prayer than I can over a video that's going to be on YouTube forever. So um, spend time learning to complain in prayer. Because that, and I know some of us have been taught not to do that, but that's, that's not what Jeremiah teaches us. That's not what Psalms teaches us. You can't have intimacy with God if you're not telling the truth. If your religion is causing you to not see what's going on, like it was for the priests and the prophets who were going about business as usual, even though the entire country was falling apart, then that's not going to get us anywhere. That's not, that's not a true intimate relationship. That's something false. So learn to complain in prayer. That's your first assignment. I know that sounds weird. It sounds weird coming out of my mouth, but I know it's what we need to do. 
Uh, second assignment is I want us to listen to and work for the call to equity and reciprocity and recovery from our addictions. So your second assignment is to pay attention for actual responses to your complaints. And again, that's why I put up God's responses to Jeremiah, because God will say things that that might surprise you. It's often the case. Don't go into prayer thinking you know what God's going to say, because, I mean, if God says exactly what you thought God was going to say, then it probably wasn't God speaking. But I'm confident that the Lord will speak to you. This is this is the bedrock of, of our faith, is that the Lord wants intimate relationship with each of us in our own particularity. And when we reach out to God in earnest, honest, gut-level honest prayer, that he will respond. And he'll respond specifically to us. And you'll hear. And it might be God just joining you in lament and being like, yeah, that's terrible. And it might be God giving you a nudge or a direction on, on how we might move through this, on how we might move into recovery from the church addictions that we've either fed or participated in. And that's the third assignment, is I want us to stop feeding and enabling these addictions. These addictions, let me name them again. The church is addicted to power, money, celebrity, consumption, growth, racism, sexism, dogma, and controlling culture. We've got to stop feeding and enabling those addictions. Now, I don't exactly know how we do that. And I want us to be thinking about that. So the assignment is I want us to be keeping in mind um, this idea of, of the leaders drunk. They were drunk. Everyone was supposed to have wine, but they had all the wine and they were getting drunk. That's that's the message here. The message here was it was supposed to be everybody gets enough wine to enjoy themselves. And what they had instead was a few people having enough wine to get plastered. So when we see leaders acting irrationally or speaking things that are disconnected from reality, um, then we should think to ourselves, is that person operating from a place of excess? Is there is there a, a, a drunkenness with money or with power or with one of those other things? And then how do we stop enabling that? How do we stop giving those people money and power and celebrity? Maybe we stop consuming their products for one. But I don't have I don't have a program for that. I just want us to be mindful that this is the example that God gives to Jeremiah. This is what he points out, is that these leaders were drunk on their own power. They were drunk on money. They were drunk on wine as well. And what the Lord was calling Jeremiah to was to recognize that this was the problem. This was the root of the problem. These, these leaders were not going to, to give up their addiction willingly. And even the ones who weren't the addicts were, you know, in a codependent relationship with them. So those are our assignments for, for this week and probably going forward. Learn to complain in prayer. Um, that's a fun assignment. Uh, to uh, pay attention for what the Lord says to you when you do that. And then three, let's be mindful that 
a lot of our leaders, and, and I think this is true of political leaders, but it's especially true of some church leaders, are, are caught up in addictions. The church itself is caught up in an addiction, in an addictive state. And how do we, and this is especially going to be important for us coming out of pandemic and moving forward, how do we reimagine our life together in ways that breaks those cycles of addiction and codependency? So I want that to be part of our conversation going forward. Okay, that's my message for today. Um, it feels both heavy and kind of, and kind of, yeah. Uh, be interested to hear your thoughts on this one. Um, I always welcome your feedback. But let's take communion together. Okay, so grab what you have to eat and what you have to drink. And we're going to consecrate this together. Because one of the ways, um, and I said this last week, I love how we're doing communion now. Because one of the ways we, we break, you know, hoarding of power is, is for people like me to give it away as much as possible. And this is the central thing where we give power away, right? Taking communion together should be an act of equity and an act of reciprocity, not an act of power and control, right? God doesn't do control. I'll get into this next week, but but uh, I don't want to preach it. I, I, I just got to say it. Um, at one point, Jeremiah's complaints like, Lord, Lord, you know, save us for the sake of your own reputation. And God's like... No, I'm not going to do that. I don't care about my own reputation. And God operates from a place of freedom, not from a place of control. God operates from a place not of domineering power, but a place of, of, of serving and powerlessness. And, and he shows us that, of course, on the cross, you know, more than any place else. And that's what we celebrate. And so we, we can't, truly celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus and then turn that into a power play. That's just the, the, the seed of hypocrisy. So take whatever it is you have to eat. And as you lift this up, sister, brother in Christ, this becomes the body of Jesus. Not because I said it, but because you are a child of God, and you are a sister and brother of Jesus. And you consecrating it makes it so. Really does. This is not just representation. This is not just do and remember it. No. This is the body of Jesus. This is the body of equity. This is the bread of heaven. Let's take it together. And this is the cup of his blood. This is the cup of reciprocity. This is Jesus pouring out his life for our lives so that we can pour out our lives for each other's lives. There's no hoarding here. There's no drunkenness here. There's no addiction here. If any of those things pertain, then we're, we've, we've misunderstood the story that we're in. So, fellow priests, lift up the cup, the cup of love together, and let's drink to the reciprocity that comes in the cup of love.
Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I want to pray a commissioning prayer right now. Lord, I pray that everyone who has listened to this message would be encouraged and emboldened to pray as honestly as Jeremiah prayed. That, that we would lay our complaints before you. That we would tell you exactly how we feel and exactly what we think. And that we would mine the depths of our hurt and our anger and our frustration. And we would pour out our hearts to you. Lord, meet us in intimacy and pour out your heart to us. Lord, I want to, I want to hear reports from, from, from these folks in the coming days and weeks of things that you've said to them in their intimate time with you. Where you've surprised them with your tears. Where you've surprised them with your own thoughts on all of these things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to move past not ignoring, but to move through and to be healed from the addictions that have racked our church in America and in the West. You would set us free both from the addictions and the codependency of addictions to money and to power and to fame and to consumption, to racism and to sexism and to discrimination. I pray that we would be able to live in freedom and, and operate in equity and live out reciprocity as you have created us to do. I pray that we would, by our truth-telling, become shalom makers in our relationship with you and with each other and with the created order and with our own selves. Honesty, Lord, deep and full honesty before you. Give us the courage for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you, and I appreciate you listening to this all the way to the end. And I will see some of you tonight at 7 for Life of the Beloved. And I'll be back next week with, um, you know, chapter 15 through 20 of Jeremiah, the Lord willing. Thank you for listening to the Gainesville Vineyard Podcast. For more information about our church and community center, including our food pantry, life skills training, legal aid, after-school and sports programs, and international missions, and how to contact us, visit GainesvilleVineyard.org or find us on Facebook. Our page name is GN Vineyard. We also have original worship songs available on iTunes. Just search for Gainesville Vineyard. You can support the work we're doing by texting the word GIVE to 352-562-7771. All donations are tax deductible. We appreciate you listening to this message and pray the Spirit speaks directly to you through something you've heard today. God bless.